Good evening, everyone, and thank you, Gordon. Uh, if you were here last Sunday night, we looked at and kind of listened to some of David's famous last words from 2 Samuel 23, although, as we said, probably better described as David's last song or last psalm. Well, tonight we, we come to one of the final incidents in David's life. It's a really interesting one that provides a further insight into his character. But 2 Samuel 24 is also a pretty tough text. It's complicated, it's complex, and it's full of uh, theological riddles. I know I've talked a lot recently about our need to accept mystery and paradox. Well, this kind of late episode in David's life definitely adds to those ideas. Many people uh, skip this chapter in David's story, and it's no wonder. Uh, but as I've said before, I'm not keen to sidestep the difficult chapters. In fact, I love them because they reveal that the Bible hasn't been toned down or kind of censored to make it more palatable and more acceptable or neat and tidy. It is baffling and bewildering, and it often leaves us with more questions than answers and quite honestly, that's okay. Mystery is okay. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Samuel 24. It's page 332 in the Red Pew Bibles. And, and I'm just going to read the first verse at the moment. And then we're going to start asking questions. But remember that questions often take us on a journey of discovery. Questions take us on a journey of discovery. Here is verse 1. It's on the screen. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And God incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, the first and the obvious question to ask is why was God angry with Israel? And quite honestly, we don't know. The previous chapter, chapter 23, ended with a list of David's mighty men. And before that, as I said earlier, we have David's final psalm or final song. And so again, in, in terms of chronology and timing, it seems that 2 Samuel 24 kind of fits somewhere else. But again, exactly where is unknown. So God is angry for whatever reason. And so he incites David to take a census. Now, as many of you know, David's story is not only recorded and told in First and Second Samuel, it also appears in First Chronicles. And so if you turn, you don't need to do this, I'm going to show you it on the screen in a minute, but if you turn to 1 Chronicles 21, which is the parallel passage to 2 Samuel 24, here's how the first verse there reads. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. Discuss. So who exactly prompted David to count the people. Was it God? Or was it the devil? 
Is this a massive contradiction? Which account? First Chronicles 21 or 2 Samuel 24? Which account's more accurate? One explanation best that I can offer is that primarily God is at work here. God is in control, but he expressly allowed Satan to test and assess David's heart and mind. There's echoes of Job's story here. And so in 2 Samuel 24, as he, the narrator here, records the incident, he doesn't even mention Satan because at the end of the day, it's God who is ultimately and actively engaged and behind and all over this incident. God's authority extends even over Satan. And God can accomplish his will using Satan by giving him permission to do what he already longs to do. But that's hard for us to understand. But let's read on. Because it gets even more intriguing. And so, as we often do at Windsor, let's stand together for the public reading of God's word. We're going to read from verse 2. And we'll go down to verse 9. We'll skip a few verses in the middle. So the king, that's David, said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of the Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel down to verse 8. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. Grab a seat. So it's pretty obvious that when God incited David to take the census, that, that David didn't question that. And so he instructs his military leaders to carry it out. But one of them, Joab, and he's a familiar character if you've been tracking this series with us. Joab is the one, to remember, who sorted out Uriah's killing, Bathsheba's husband. Joab is also the one who plunged three spears into Absalom's heart, David's son. He's a bit of a villain. Joab wouldn't have exactly been a great influence on David. But despite the fact that he isn't really known for his godliness, he was given to moments of insight and wisdom. And here is a case in point. And whenever Joab hears about this idea of David's to count the people, he's uncomfortable with those instructions. And therefore, he asks David directly, which was a brave thing to do, because remember, David was the king. He says, why do you want to do such a thing, David? And in that question alone, you begin to sense, although the text may not say it explicitly, but you begin to sense from Joab's question, maybe, just maybe, was this not only a strange thing to do, but possibly wrong? 
possibly a bad thing to do, sinful thing to do. And the thing is, we need people like that in our lives. People who are prepared to question us. People who are prepared to confront us when they think we're making poor choices. People who are not afraid to step in and challenge our behavior, challenge the direction that we're heading. And sometimes those people can be the least ones that we expect. Even a non-Christian friend can be the one to query our actions. It's important, really important, that we allow people to speak into our lives. It seems that Joab sensed something was wrong here, sensed pride in David's proposal, which, as we all know, is a lethal sin, and so Joab bravely speaks into David's life, but David's not for listening. And so it says he overruled Joab. He also overruled the other commanders. So it wasn't just Joab who had an issue here. Other army commanders were a bit concerned about David's idea. But David overruled him. And so a census was taken. And it took almost 10 months to complete. There was no online option available. And the results came back confirming 800,000 fighting men in Israel, 500,000 in Judah. And then you get to verse 10 which we didn't read. And here's what it says. It's on the screen. So after the results come back, here's the next thing you read. David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. So, it was wrong to take a census. Joab was right. But hang on a minute. Back to verse 1. God incited David to take the census. So what's going on? Well, as one commentator I, I love to read says about this incident, the God of this narrative is unfettered and dangerous and beyond our discernment. And you're right, he is. And again, I've got to fully accept a sense of mystery here. I, I can't give you an easy answer as to why is it that God incites David to do something. David then does it, and when David does it, David is conscience-stricken. But here is the important thing to accept and bear in mind. However much David is incited by God in this episode, David remains culpable for his own actions. And that, I say, the only reason I can say that is because of verse 10. Because David realizes this. And so he confesses his sin. He admits that what he did was very foolish. David doesn't blame God. David doesn't turn around to God and says, but hang on a minute, God, you incited me to do it. David says, no, I have sinned. I have done something really foolish. I need you, God, to sort out 
my guilt. And if you jump down to verse 17, this is even further stressed and emphasized because David says, I alone have sinned. I alone have done wickedly. There's no passing the blame. There's no making excuses. David acknowledges his personal guilt and seeks forgiveness. And whatever else we take from this text this evening, please note that it focuses on this aspect of David's character, his wholehearted repentance and penitence. That is the key thing that I kind of want us to go away from here this evening with. Here is David again revealed as someone who is wholeheartedly repentant and penitent whenever he realizes he has done wrong. And during the second half of his life, since the time he became king some 40 years previously, this has actually become one of David's defining characteristics. And it's the characteristic that distinguishes him from his predecessor Saul, but also distinguishes him from his successor Solomon. Because unlike both of them, David is quick to acknowledge his faults. Saul never did. Solomon never did. But David was quick to put his hand up and say, I've got this wrong. I've messed up. I've done a really foolish thing. And that is the mark of someone, despite their weaknesses, Despite their stupidity at times, it's the mark of someone who is a man after God's own heart. And so let me challenge you with that insight and that kind of discovery. Is this a defining characteristic of us, of me? Are we a repentant people? Are we willing to admit our own mistakes and faults? Are we quick to seek forgiveness? when we get it wrong? Do we pray constantly for clean hands, pure hearts on a regular basis? Or have we, have I, become casual and indifferent regarding my own sin? Or even prone to make excuses? Or apportion blame? Never mind kind of, but, but God made, we would never say that, but there's the classic line, the devil made me do it. In a few moments, we, uh, we find ourselves back around this table. Back to a place that reminds us of the cost involved in making our ultimate forgiveness possible, but it's also a place of recall. It's a place of reconnection as we once again have the opportunity to confess our daily sins and to seek forgiveness from a God, as Gordon said, who is faithful and who's just and who longs to forgive us. David was someone willing and ready to admit his shortcomings and turn back to God. And therefore, his example, in the midst of this complicated, complex text, David's example is so well worth embracing. But the story doesn't end there with David on his knees. I kind of wish it had, but it doesn't. So let's read on. You see, previously in David's life, Nathan had been a kind of spiritual advisor to him, God's spokesperson. But here it's another of David's seers, a prophet called Gad, who now speaks the word of God into David's later life. Let's read from verses 11 to 17. You can keep your seats this time. 
Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options, David. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over. Decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to God, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of God, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent the plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the designated time. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. And when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aranuna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. <laughs> so many questions again. Judgment and consequences. We've talked about this before. And there's no getting away from them because even though we can be, as David was, forgiven by God, there was still fallout in his life. And that is just part of the harsh reality of sin, that we make mistakes, yes. And although we repent and we discover God's incredible forgiveness, yes, there are often repercussions that must be confronted sometimes lived with, and they can be hard to take, really hard to handle. And David's story here and previously makes this abundantly clear. David is here faced with a horrendous dilemma. He gets, try, try to put yourself in his shoes here. David gets to choose his judgment or pick his poison. Except that this poison, this judgment, this punishment, it's not, it's not his alone. It's going to impact those people you counted. The cascading effect of our personal sin can be serious. Many others end up hurt by the choices we make. And again, we, we know this. My decisions, my actions, my attitudes can have a far-reaching negative impact. But even though we know that, even though we accept that still, what happens here is mind-blowing. David has given three choices. The prophet says, David, here are your three choices from God. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of running from the enemy. 
or you can have three days of plague. And no wonder whenever David hears this in verse 14, he says, listen, I'm distressed. That this is a shocking choice to make. And as he reflects on this and remembers, God has said to him, David, think this over. Think this carefully. Think this through carefully what you're going to choose. And as David reflects, he comes to this conclusion. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. You see, David knows, as the writer of Hebrews makes clear, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But David also knows and understands that there's still a more terrible thing not to. David fears God the most. But David trusts God the most. David fears God the most, trusts God the most. David knows the Lord to be both his judge and his savior. And he senses that if in the face of God's wrath, mercy is going to be found anywhere, it's going to be found in God. And so he says, look, let's fall into the hands of God. Because his mercy is great. And so David opts for three days of plague. Not because it's the shortest. Not because it's the swiftest. But because it is the one it seems as far as he's concerned. Where he is able to attribute it most directly to God. And so for 72 hours. The Lord sends a devastating plague that kills 70,000 people. And I find this difficult to read. But in verse 16, the Lord relents. He calls a halt to the killing. It seems that God changes his mind in the face of destruction. If you've got a King James Version, it reads, the Lord repented. Now, if that doesn't send your head spinning. But the bigger issue here, and again, I can't explain what that means. The Lord relents. The Lord changes his mind in the face of destruction. God repents. But the bigger issue here is that God is indeed merciful. You see, the killing here doesn't stop because David was repentant. The killing stops because God is merciful. One man's sin led to the death of thousands. Sounds familiar. It seems so unfair, but so wrong. And David realizes this. And it's why in verse 17 he says, But God, listen, I alone have sinned. I alone have done wickedly. But those sheep, see my people, what have they done? 
Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And so however we process the fact that God incited David to take the census, David makes it clear that he's responsible. He's culpable for his actions. And so David takes full responsibility for what he did. And he hates to see other people suffer because of his actions. And therefore he asks God, he pleads with God, listen, come down on me, come down on my family like a ton of bricks, but don't come down on my sheep. It's commendable. It's a further insight into David's true character. But you know something that's clear from the text? That God doesn't accept David's offer. Why not? mystery and clearly there are times when we simply have to accept the repercussions of our sinful attitudes and actions despite how unfair we think it is particularly when others get hurt as a consequence of our actions and decisions yes we can be forgiven yes we can be reconciled with God again Yes, we can have clean hands and pure hearts. But there's often a kickback. And so we finish the story. Not going to read the last part, but God then instructs. By the way, when people generally get to this chapter in the David story, it's this part of the story that they look at. They, they skip those first two scenes, and it's understandable. But God then instructs David to go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor where the, where the hand of the angel kind of relented. And David obeys God, and along with his servants, he goes to this man's threshing floor, and he asks him, can I buy it from you? Because I want to erect an altar to the Lord here so that this plague may be averted. And Arununa tells David the king to take the threshing floor. In fact, he says, I tell you what, I will provide the oxen for the burnt offering. And not only will I provide the oxen for the burnt offering, I'll also provide the wood. But David says, no. And so let me just read from verse 24 to the end. But the king said to Arununa, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. And David built an altar to the Lord there and he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. David's response, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You see, a sacrifice that costs the sacrificer nothing is no sacrifice at all. A sacrifice that costs the sacrificer nothing is no sacrifice at all. And David, David's answer here underlines his wholehearted repentance. David's sin, he knows, has cost a lot, so much. 
70,000 people have lost their lives as a result of my sin. And so he believes that his subsequent sacrifice now needs to cost him dearly. And so I'm not going to accept it free. I'm not looking for a cheap and easy way to please God. Genuine sacrifice requires me to pay a price. And it was a price David was prepared to pay. And so money exchanges hands, and an altar is built, and sacrifices are made, and the plague stops. And therefore, what we find at the end of this tough text is, to quote one commentator, it's a man after God's own heart turning the occasion of his sin and its punishment into an occasion of worship. Sacrificial worship. And as I said at the start, this is not a comfortable narrative. And I know I have left people with probably more questions than answers. A God who incites David to do something and then punishes him and 70,000 others for doing it leaves us scratching our heads. But although we may want to question the text and although we may want to interrogate the text, we must also remember that when it comes to God's word, the real question is, in what ways does this text interrogate me? And as I've read it this week, and I've really struggled with it and wrestled with it, here's where I find myself. I'm confronted by the need for honest confession of sin whenever I make mistakes. I'm reminded that sin must never be taken lightly because of its far-reaching effects and potential damage. I'm comforted in the assurance that God forgives and accepts genuine repentance. I'm inspired by the story of someone who, despite their weaknesses and feelings, goes down in history as a man after God's own heart. I'm challenged regarding my sacrificial worship. And I'm amazed at a God who is mysteriously awesome, yet incredibly merciful. And therefore, like David, I choose to fall into the hands of God.